Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J. Of course, on everybody's mind right now is what's happening on a national level in terms of our health and our welfare and our safety and the coronavirus that is spreading. And you're going to say, B.J., this is Law Talk with B.J., not Health Talk with B.J., and yet there are legal issues here. And it's I, as I was listening on the news, I realized, you know, we're talking about quarantines. We're talking about um, state orders, about what we can and can't do, where we can go, where, whether we're going to be able to, to, to go to work or not go to work. And those are laws, and people are enforcing those laws. And then I thought to myself, who am I going to go to? And I did a little research. And I have a guest for us who I think who can illuminate a lot of what's going on on the legal end as we navigate our health and safety and wellness from this virus. And so I welcome Fazal Khan to the show. Hi. Hi, BJ. Thanks for inviting me. So you are a professor at the University of Georgia School of Law, specializing in healthcare law, bioethics, healthcare law, and policy, and have written extensively over the years on government accountability during public health emergencies. And hopefully it's not as emergency as we are worried it is, but we, we're we in a zone that most of us have never, in my lifetime, I can't remember being worried this way in my 56 years here on earth. Um, and so we're going to need some guidance from you about what are the laws, what are the things that we should be aware of, and where do we need to be careful of whether the power is being used in the wrong way? So first off, guide us. Where should we start in terms of the bare basics of law in this area? Sure. And, uh, you know, with any type of legal case, it always helps to know the facts. So if we can briefly go over chronology of the timeline, and then we can talk about, okay, what the legal policy response should be. So with coronavirus, um, which now they're calling COVID-19, stands for Coronavirus Infectious Disease 2019, we think that it started around December 2019 in China, around uh, the city of Wuhan, a very large city uh, in, in southern China. And what we saw is that initially there was a doctor who described what he thought was like SARS-like uh, virus as very serious and he sent a message to all his medical school colleagues saying that be careful you know it seems like this is going around I've seen a bunch of cases and this was a private a kind of a WeChat message uh, within a week he was the police visited him officials in China and kind of detained him and kind of forced him to write another statement saying that you know he has been spreading false rumors fake news and uh, these rumors were not helpful as it turns out, he was correct, right? And he was kind of uh, blowing the whistle on kind of the healthcare system there that wasn't ready 
um, to kind of address this really serious challenge. And from the point of view here, where as we were watching it on the news, you kind of think, well, that's horrible, but that's all the way across the ocean. That's way far away. And how is that ever going to impact us? Right. And if you look at, say, you know, the uh, stock market, commodities markets, which in a way, you know, economics is kind of predicting human behavior, what they think, you know, the, the strength of the trading economy is. You saw the Chinese stocks getting hit because they were starting, once they realized the scope of it, to quarantine, shut down major cities like Wuhan and surrounding areas. But you never really saw that impacting the U.S. market or global markets. It's like, yeah, we're kind of sheltered. China is taking these extreme, well, probably in retrospect, helpful measures and kind of isolate and quarantine large population centers, which probably delayed the spread globally. But we thought, okay, we're far away. You know, it's not going to come here. And if it does, it'll be mild. It'll be a few cases. Turns out it's likely going to be a pandemic, meaning it's around the globe and it's going to be difficult to contain. If at all, right now we're just in the mitigation stage. And and with needing containment, I think all of us sitting at home and, and those of us, I know my neighbors have been making fun of me about um, making sure I have two weeks full of you know, food and that I have the dog food and the cat food and I'm ready to be in my house. Um, and But with each news story and each moment of this, we're all starting to think maybe the same thing, that there are also other steps that the government, you know, there's some things that are voluntary, but it may shift over that it's involuntary that the government's going to tell us what we can and can't do. Certainly. Anytime there's uh, some type of you know, infectious disease outbreak, uh, you know, the government has to look at, okay, what is the, the disease? How is it spread? How serious is it? And what should be the proper response? Should, you know, quarantine and isolation, mandatory quarantine and isolation be part of the solution? Now, if you take something like, you know, the common cold, you know, which affects a lot of people, um, we know it's spread by respiratory uh, spread. So if you're near someone who's coughing, if they, you know, if you touch a surface that's contaminated, then you might get it. But cold is not very serious in terms of its health effects. It's annoying. You should probably stay at home. Don't go to school. Uh, but if you get it, it, it's not, it doesn't have fatal consequences. With, you know, this COVID-19 coronavirus, we know that it is a serious health threat, particularly to certain demographics, older uh, people. Um, so overall, they're estimating that the case fatality rate is around anywhere from one and a half to two percent uh, for people who have uh, the disease. So compared to, you know, say the, the seasonal flu, seasonal flu typically is like 0.1%. So it's 20 times more deadly uh, than the seasonal flu. And so early on, you know, there are a lot of statements, people saying, well, you know, the flu is much more serious in terms of how many people it's going to affect, how many people it's going to kill. And that is true. But I, I think it perhaps understates the, the concern with, with coronavirus that if it does spread more, uh, then it's looking more like these kind of historical events, like the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, which also had a case fatality rate around two to two and a half percent. And then we're talking about a very serious kind of global changing event. So what laws are there now that govern and determine um, what, who can order us to do or not do something in the, in the spirit of public health? Right. So as you said in the introduction, so public health law is one of my uh, areas of expertise and background. And under the Constitution, the 10th Amendment, all the powers that didn't go to the federal government were reserved to the states to kind of advance public health and welfare. So under the 10th Amendment, it has historically been seen as the state's 
prime as being the primary uh, vanguard of kind of addressing public health. And we see that you know at the state level, you know the governor, along with the Department of Public Health, can declare states of emergencies, which will uh, which will trigger certain features. And so most states, Georgia and other ones have similar type of laws to for dealing with you know, emergencies. It will kind of relax certain licensing rules. So if we need, say, surge capacity of, say, nurses, doctors from other states who aren't licensed here, they can now practice, help out here. It makes funding available, uh, kind of low interest rates. I think whenever there's, like, say, hurricane or tornado, state emergencies declared, it's a way of kind of loosening funding kind of uh, strictures. Uh, but also, it can grant certain powers to government agents. So, if the gov- if the government decides that okay, we this is serious enough a disease that we want to socially distance people, we can isolate known cases or quarantine suspected uh, contacts or people that we think we might have been exposed. And so, that's kind of a big decision to make. When do we de- decide that we'll have you know mandatory? Uh, uh, quarantine of populations. So are, are these quarantine laws specific to each state, or is there both state and national federal law that affect there, um, the decision to yeah, quarantine? there are both. So every state will have their own kind of form of quarantine laws, and they also have what's known as mandatory reporting laws for different types of infectious diseases, and they'll have an actual list. Like anytime there's a new case at a clinic that appears, if it's on the mandatory reporting list, you know, the doctor or facility doesn't have discretion to not identify the state officials. They all notify them right away. And then at the national level, you have the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control here in Atlanta, and the federal government, uh, which also has uh, limited federal quarantine powers, which um, are, are, haven't been used that much in the past, but um, they are there. They're available if it seems like this has become a national crisis. So I'm going to stop you for a second because we're using the word quarantine as mm-hmm. if we all understand what that means um, in terms of the legal consequences of it and the and the scope of it. You know, it's one thing when your your parent or family or member says, OK, you're, you're staying in the house and you can't go to the grocery and you can't go to the gas station and touch things and spread whatever you've got. But on the more legal, severe level, what is the law, what is considered to be quarantine and who can order it? Yeah. So essentially quarantine is just like you're isolating someone that you think has been exposed to the disease. And so they have to separate themselves from the rest of society, meaning that they can't go out in public, you know, they can't go to work or school or other areas where public gathers because they can be a source of spreading the disease. So typically that means like you might be quarantined at home. Or in some cases, you might be quarantined at a medical facility um, or be observed. So in the case of, you know, Americans who are traveling overseas and then were brought back to the U.S., some of them now being quarantined at a military base. So they're separated from the rest of society until we see whether or not they have symptoms. And so that has to do with the incubation period of the disease. So that the incubation period is from the time that you've been infected until kind of the symptoms become manifest. And, you know, if we know what the quarantine period is, typically for a lot of these viruses, it's around like 14 days, two weeks. If after two weeks you don't show any signs of exposures, or sorry, any signs of disease after we suspect you've been exposed, then you're technically you should be kind of free to kind of leave that quarantine. And and who determines that you're free to go? I mean, what kind of structure or is it or mm-hmm. is it different in each location? Yeah, typically it would be kind of the state public health department. And so they'll have public health scientists, epidemiologists, virologists working with the executive branch. So at the state level, it would be the governor's office. And the CDC at the federal level will coordinate 
and act as this kind of expert guide and saying, here are the best practices for quarantine for this particular disease. Here are the best practices for identifying uh, cases. So in, in Georgia, I think it was in the news just in the last day or so that our governor, Governor um, Kemp, has put together a, a board of people who are experts to you know help advise and and determine things. Is is are, is this part of what you're talking about in terms of laws already in the books, or is this something separate, a gubernatorial power that they have to create advisory boards to help set up policy on this? Yeah. So I mean, it inherently flows from. Uh, the state's 10th Amendment power and the governor being executive of the state has the power to kind of protect the public health and safety of its population. And so it's under that kind of executive power, he can convene a group of experts. And typically, they're already, that structure's already in place, right? So you have at the state level, uh, you know, public health officials, and you have the county level as well, like Fulton, DeKalb County here in Atlanta will have their own public officials, but they all work together. When the system works well, you have both local officials, state officials, and federal officials coordinating their efforts to address you know, public health concern. When things don't go well, you will have miscommunication and maybe missed opportunities for addressing a public health crisis. And you know, to your listeners, you might remember during Hurricane Katrina, you saw a lot of back and forth between you know, the mayor of Louisiana, uh, Ray Nagan, and then the governor. You had the kind of state and local officials arguing over who was responsible. Then you had the federal government, uh, the George W. Bush administration, also being, uh, you know, cr- critiqued for saying not acting quick enough. And their response as well, we didn't get permission from the state to go in. And under a, you know, kind of strict reading constitution, they're right. Responding to kind of public health disasters is typically the state's power and under kind of their sovereign right, they have the right to invite the government in and not just have the government impose its will. But there was also a credible argument that at that point in time, the federal government should recognize that this is not a state local issue. This is, you know, interstate, you know, national issue and they, and they should have been pr- more proactive. So do we learn lessons from Katrina and that um, disaster and what happened that have changed the laws so that we may not experience that now if we go through a crisis with regard to this virus? No, that's a great question. So if you look at kind of Katrina and the timeline, um, initially there was not enough concern being given to the impact of the hurricane because at that point in time it downgraded from, you know, I think category four or five to category three. So still severe hurricane, but not you know, you know, the wind knocking down structures of buildings. The problem was the flooding. The problem was the flooding afterwards and a crumbling infrastructure within New Orleans that had not been updated. And, and, and beyond. I went down to Mississippi. I, I volunteered. Shortage, yeah. yeah, I um, was in Bay St. Louis for a couple of weeks, um, several months after the storm. And I, I remember that's when I first got interested in, in disaster issues beyond just this. It's kind of been a, something that I've been attracted to to work on because I kept thinking, I remember arriving there thinking, where are all the people to help? And when I show up with my car full of supplies and what they had told me, and then the man looks at me and goes, what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm a lawyer. And he said a few choice cuss words Mm -hmm. like, and this is what they're sending me to help. We need, you know, it, it was so, I mean, there were things I could do, but you know, it wasn't the level of help that you would expect if, God forbid, you're going through that. And so I am now accelerating that vision I had from being there to now in this 
more difficult thing. This is the unseen. We just know that someone gets afflicted by our virus and gets very ill and potentially can pass it on easily. You know, where does the structure come in there? Sure. I mean, the insidious nature of infectious disease, especially one where it's still at the early stages, so we're having difficulty identifying it, identifying cases, you know, separating them from, you know, regular seasonal flu, um, that's a big challenge. Whereas with a national disaster, you can identify, okay, here's where people are in need, or they're stranded on top of this rooftop, et cetera. Uh, But just going back to Katrina, we saw the pattern was kind of initially complacency, and then the federal government and the Bush administration was critiqued, right? Everyone remembers the heck of a job brownie comment for the FEMA director, Mike Brown, and that he wasn't doing a heck of a job, and that there were a lot of people who were still hurting, needed the federal government to take a stronger response in terms of addressing their needs. And that led to what I would argue, and I argued in my uh, article that you referenced earlier that came out in the Harvard Law and Policy Review, that there was an overreaction. So then you saw kind of, you know, federal troops coming in, you know, with like full military gear and rounding up local New Orleans residents. You know, some of them were accused of looting. Another way to look at it is that they were trying to survive because they didn't have access to food or water and people weren't providing it to them. The government was essentially shut down as a state of nature. Um, but locals were then kind of being rounded up with very little due process. And people in New Orleans who experienced that have a, have a term for it. They call it Katrina time, where some individuals for up to several months were just in these kind of federally um, run. It was actually run by independent contractors, the same ones that are running detention centers in Iraq at the time. Um, and they just have these makeshift camps. People were in there. There was no kind of due process, like, why are you here? Should you be here? Um, And so the analogy concern is, are we going to have an overreaction after initial complacency where we are, you know, kind of holding people up, you know, putting them away and not kind of revisiting should they actually be there? And is it actually protecting the public or not? So so the actions as of right this moment that we're seeing, um, do you feel like or does it seem like other powers are available? Let's talk first on the federal side that should already be mobilized at this point when we are still in this early, you know, worldwide, it's mm-hmm. disturbing the numbers in the United States right now. We're, you know, two at a time, 50, 20, 10, um, and yet we're making a lot of changes to accommodate that. Yeah, I, I think the biggest role the federal government can play right now is has the power of the purse and it has a lot of resources that can mobilize to help where we think the outbreak is occurring. So obviously in Washington state, uh, there's there's an outbreak there and it's impacted. This one particular nursing home, I think four residents have already died there. And we've seen but you know cases in Georgia, New York, uh, Texas, and California. So it's really all spread out. So what the federal government can do is help the state and local authorities to mount their response. And that can include better testing kits so we can identify, surveil in the community who's sick. Um, you know, there's a national stockpile for these types of emergencies, which includes, you know, masks, respirators, um, you know, different medications, you know, antivirals, antibiotics. And I know some of your listeners think, wait, wait a minute, this is a virus, you know, the antibiotics don't work for us. That is correct. But often what kills patients when they suffer from something like you know, coronavirus or SARS was a secondary pneumonial bacterial infection. So having those available to treat those uh, secondary pneumonial infections is really important, as well as all the other kind of supportive measures. Uh, so in that regard, the federal government has been a little late to the game and has been kind of criticized for that. But hopefully, 
You know, and this is one area where, ironically, I think the deep state can actually help out the Trump administration because you have some very uh, highly trained career civil servants who know or are experts in the area. You know, one that I think really stands out is Dr. Anthony Fauci from the National Institutes of Health. He's the head of their allergy and infectious diseases uh, division. And he's been in that role since the 80s, since, ni- since uh, the HIV epidemic started under the Reagan administration. And I think what's really impressive about Dr. Anthony Fauci is that he is such an effective communicator. And he can really kind of calm both politicians and the public and explain you know, what needs to be done in a clear way. So if I was in charge, and clearly I'm not, I would have you know, Dr. Fauci be the point person for messaging on you know, what individuals and local and state governments should be doing at this point in time. So in terms of the chain of command of actually enforcing any sort of, sort of quarantine, um, what does that look like? Who is, I mean, is it just law enforcement going out or is it the military? Who is it that's going out to make sure that people are um, doing what they need to do and not breaking curfews or whatever, whatever things are put into place to supposedly keep you staying at home and not spreading something. Yeah. So a lot of times it will be law enforcement. And so it would be kind of the state uh, public health office working with local officials, you know, local police departments to say that, you know, if there's quarantine order, this is individuals under quarantine, make sure they stay there, they don't leave. Um, But if you have a widespread pandemic, you can quickly see that that's not going to work. And really what you need to rely on is voluntary cooperation. So if there is a, a quarantine order, say for a certain area, geographic area, you really need people to go along with it. And then you have, say, law enforcement or state you know, officials then come in and say, okay, we're going to focus on those who are non-compliant. And you can use technology as well to kind of expand, augment your resources. Using how, how is that? So they've done this in China. They're having people, you know, they're monitoring where they are because we all have our own personal tracking devices. Most of us are called cell phone that gives kind of location. So if you're under mandatory quarantine order, you you can be given order saying that your phone has to be on all time. And then the government can monitor, are you leaving? Are you going there to the shopping mall when you're under quarantine order? And then kind of track you down that way. And what kind of statutes in the United States make that enforceable? What, What are we looking at there? So we're looking at kind of emergency health powers acts. Okay. All right. So anytime, uh, you know, there is a public health emergency or any natural disaster emergency, the governor can declare this. And then that allows them to deputize you know, local officials to work on behalf of the state. Um, and they can kind of respond in that way. Uh, but I think the challenge is, you know, going back to you know, previous disease we discussed, kind of the SARS outbreak, that was in 2003. It started in Hong Kong, but one of the biggest uh, outbreaks outside of the area was in Toronto, Canada. And at that point in time, uh, Canada imposed a quarantine on 30,000 people within kind of the Toronto metro area. Now, there's no way they could station a police officer in front of every door. So they really had to rely on people just cooperating with these mandatory orders. But they also did, took other measures. So the government also provide mortgage relief because, you know, if people fear that, you know, if they're in home, they can't work and say in the service industry, uh, that can be a huge uh, fear for them more than so than than the virus. Uh, So they provided that. They provided kind of food services, delivering food, water, et cetera. And most people complied. There's only a handful. I think it's under 30 cases in Toronto where 
the police actually had to, you know, make sure someone didn't leave and kind of monitor physically that they didn't leave their house. Now, the challenge with the U.S. is, you know, we have this reputation, I think well-deserved, of being rugged individualists, not as communitarian, meaning community-oriented as other societies such as China, perhaps even Canada, even though I think we're closer to Canada. So that could be a challenge when, one, there we people don't follow what are kind of good orders from the government to voluntarily comply, or two, people don't trust the messaging coming from government officials. And also thinking about vulnerable populations. So, for instance, if you're incarcerated, um, whether it's a prison or just even a, a local jail for um, uh, you haven't been actually convicted yet, you know, what that that's got to be a very difficult thing. You know, how how do these laws protect those people there um, if they do? If they do contract the disease. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the state, if you have custody of, you know, an individual is incarcerated, then you have a duty to provide them with medical care, right, regardless of their ability to pay because you have custody or there's very little they can do. Uh, but I think the challenge is, you know, with a lot of these infectious diseases, they can spread rapidly under those conditions. So if you do have someone from the community, and usually the spread is from the community to the institution. So if someone has, say, the virus and then is brought in, is incarcerated, and they don't do adequate screening testing on intake, uh, then it could be a problem if then they're put with the, say, general population where it can spread rapidly because they're so close together. Where in the in your studies of, of these kind of public health issues have you seen the abuses of power that come from these health power acts to to to, to, to supposedly protect, mm-hmm. and then it becomes more, more of a persecution in some sure. way. Sure. So we have a string of cases um, in San Francisco when the bubonic plague was uh, apparent there. And so this is like in the 1890s. Uh, and there are a couple of cases, the Wang Wai case and the Juho case were both uh, ethnic Chinese individuals who were part of this quarantine in the Chinatown portion of San Francisco. And it was clear that the way that the San Francisco uh, government county officials drew the quarantine, they only were applying it to the Chinese individuals because there are some businesses and homes within the Chinatown area but who are Caucasian individuals who are not subject to this order. Uh, so this was heard under kind of equal protection argument that this valid government action of kind of imposing quarantine um, was was impl- was applied in a kind of unequal fashion and kind of discriminating against the, the Chinese Americans living there under you know a racist theory that somehow they're more susceptible to disease and more likely to pass it along, which wasn't the case. And so that's still potentially a risk if somebody goes into a certain area um, and has biases, whether based on color, religion, or socioeconomically. You know, you th- I think of. You know, there are different neighborhoods. You know, we're in Atlanta, so there's certain neighborhoods that have more resources than others. Um, are there any laws that try to make sure that the resources are given out in a balanced fashion such that there isn't that discrimination? Not that I'm aware of because, you know, the executive has a lot of discretion to take necessary action, especially during an emergency. So, you know, the executive says, OK, we need to target resources here. And so meaning the governor's the office, the governor's office, yeah, or a mayor, or a mayor, or or the or the president, right? You know, the top executive in the country. Uh, they have a lot of discretion to take actions, especially during emergencies. And you know, if you look at kind of the balance of powers, you know, is the judiciary really going to check them during emergency? 
Uh, the evidence is no, that they're given kind of broad deference. And also kind of Congress is another check, but they act slower. They can pass legislation saying you need to kind of distribute these resources more equitably, but that will take time. So the short answer is uh, the executive has a lot of power. We're talking about the state governor or uh, the, the president in determining how the the shape of the reaction to any type of public health emergency. Are there are there any other laws than the ones we mentioned that help guide those executives in their decision making to make sure that it is a fair allocation of goods and services to protect the most number of citizens? Sure. I mean, so you have constitutional protections, right? Kind of equal protection uh, to make sure that the application of law is kind of equal and done in a you know unbiased fashion. But during, in the middle of a response, it's really kind of hard to kind of make that You're not that getting case. into federal court to be able to get that overturned Yeah, it's emergency. a challenge. Uh, but yeah, but going back to this two case in San Francisco, there was enough evidence showing that clearly just the, the, the way that they drew the quarantine that kind of snaked around non-Chinese houses and business saying, okay, you can stay open, but if you're ethnic Chinese, you had to stay in your home, you couldn't leave. That was clear evidence that uh, what was a valid exercise of the state power was being done in an unequal fashion. So as we're seeing this up close, and I have to say I've never really thought about, even being a lawyer, this is not something I've thought about a great deal. As as this is coming up, is it already signaling to you that there's room for change after we get past this, and let's pray that we get past this with ease and the, and the least um, number of sickness and, and move on, but that Maybe it's a modern health lesson of, in terms of the law, what should we have to make us better respond to it in a fair and equitable way that impacts health but also protects our liberty? Sure. And, you know, one thing that can be done is make healthcare more accessible. All right. And I think this emerging crisis really shows that the most vulnerable among us, um, you know, that's kind of, that might represent kind of our overall. Uh, health of our nation. So someone suspects, you know, they're ill, they have a, you know, flu-like symptoms, maybe it's seasonal flu, maybe it's a cold, maybe it's coronavirus, but if they have a high deductible plan where they have to pay out of pocket to do kind of preventive screening, they might not do it. Or if they don't have insurance at all, they might be weighing, okay, can I really afford to get this checked out if the government isn't making these resources available? And so I, I think universal access to healthcare is a legal change that would make our overall response more robust because people won't be afraid of accessing healthcare when they're sick um, or getting tested because they would have the means to, to to pay for it under that type of system. And any laws that could help um, or any thoughts on keeping the system going? You know, in other words, we still have to keep the hospitals open. We still have to have um, uh, law enforcement. You know, a lot of things need to be working um, and not just shut down and not all just sheltered in our houses? Are there any improvements there that you can think of as you've worked in this space over the years? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, so a big challenge is, you know, we need first responders to be available to respond to, you know, other emergency challenges. Because, you know, at the same time coronavirus is going on, we're still going to have, you know, seasonal flu. We'll still have people with heart attacks, uh, with other health conditions that need to get treated. And so there is a concern that, we might have, you know, people who are mildly ill, overly kind of concerned, uh, just flooding kind of the healthcare system and uh, kind of stressing its capacity. So that that's a big challenge. Um, and we also make, need to make sure that there's enough kind of surge capacity 
uh, where we're kind of stockpiling you know, all these masks. And one of the things that's going on right now is that you can't find these protective masks anywhere, right? And it's really important that we have healthcare workers get more, most access to it and vulnerable uh, populations, say those in you know nursing homes and elsewhere. And but what we see is kind of a kind of panic starting to take over the population where you know people that don't need these masks are kind of hoarding them. Well, I appreciate your urgent answer to my call when I just reached out of the blue mm-hmm. yesterday and said, I started thinking about these issues. Who can I find? And next thing I know, my alma mater has somebody. Yeah. Um, so I very much appreciate you coming in and sharing this to, for everyone because we do want everyone to be healthy. We don't every we don't want panic, um, but we do need to understand that there there is some law involved here, and that there may be some orders or directives that um, will c- catch us by surprise. Because I think we 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 very much are independent culture in terms of resisting being told what to do by the government. Yeah, but, and if I can add, I think you hit the exact right tone there. We shouldn't panic. Panic is not helpful at all, but there needs to be appropriate level of concern. And also, you know, there are a lot of experts that we have, both at the state, local level, and federal level. And when they're kind of giving, you know, the kind of direction and warnings, I think we should follow them. Um and by things also incumbent upon those individuals who do have a lot of authority, a lot of legal authority, say, to impose, you know, a mandatory quarantine, uh, to use that power wisely. Because the more people are able to trust their statements as being accurate, the more willing they are to follow it without, say, additional compulsory resources or coercive resources put in place. And even with this heavy subject, I've chosen a tea for us. We've been drinking a cup of tea, as we do on every Um, episode of Law Talk with BJ. And the tea that we're enjoying is a lemongrass tea that in some cultures is a spiritual tea of protection. And um, I do think this is a time for protection, of self-protection, protecting our neighbors, checking on those who are vulnerable, who are older, who live alone, think about our pets, um, bring out the best of us during this difficult time. Um, and have an understanding now and then as we go through this and hopefully get past it, take a few moments and think in the future, you know, what laws, what things that we can have to, um, because unfortunately it is not a perfect world and there are emergencies that come up upon us and preparedness. Um, as I was a Girl Scout and be prepared, that is a, um, it, that's a real thing. And I think, Hopefully all of us are realizing let's let's all be prepared and let's just hope and pray that everyone gets through this well. So thank you for joining me. Thank you. Enjoy the conversation. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ Music Theme, written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein, Esquire.